Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Aaron Cariati, MD, a physician specializing in psychiatry and author of three books, including most recently, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State, published in 2022. He is a fellow and director of the Program in Bioethics in American Democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a senior scholar and fellow at the Brownstone Institute. I welcome Erin Cariati to Savage Minds. I was at the public library quite a bit these weeks, and they had a special intervention, guest speakers talking about fascism in Italy. There are some psychologists who are going to be lecturing on childhood bullying, and I'm going to go and perhaps they might feel that I'm adult bullying them, but I'm going to ask them why we're not talking about the elephant in the room here. Because one thing that's happened in many countries across the EU is governments here yeah. have offered what they call in Italy the bonus psicologo. Yep. But we're not going to say why we're offering this money to you, because it's just a coincidence everyone needs a psychologist because of no reason. And if lockdown weren't bad enough, even though the Great Barrington Declaration and others have been saying for years this was not the right thing to do, we've now entered into this other territory, which is not that far afoot, but masks, yes, no, do they work, what kind, then the vaccines and the boosters. Can you talk a bit about how you entered into this scenario? Well, so for most of my career, 15 years plus, I was a professor at the School of Medicine at the University of California in Irvine, uh, where I also directed the program in medical ethics. So I chaired the ethics committee in the hospital I also chaired the ethics committee at the California Department of State Hospitals, the state psychiatric hospital system. And as a medical ethicist, when the lockdowns continued for a prolonged period of time, I began to get worried. And so my first foray was actually uh, precisely the issue you just mentioned, which was the collateral mental health harms of COVID. So this was back in August of 2020, I published my first uh, sort of critique of our COVID public policy, uh, an article called The Other Pandemic in a journal called Public Discourse. And The Other Pandemic was referring to the lockdown mental health harms that I was seeing both in my psychiatric clinic, but also we, we were seeing emerging evidence over the summer of 2020 of these massive harms. And just to give you a quick sketch of what that looked like, this was a study from our own CDC, ironically, in June of 2020, showing that anxiety disorders had quadrupled as compared to the same month one year prior during the lockdowns. Depressive disorders had tripled. One in 10 Americans was reporting serious suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, not at any point during their lifetime, but at in the last 30 days during the month of June 2020. And if you broke that already sort of appalling number down by age, among 18 to 24-year-olds, university-age students and so forth, young adults, that number was 24%. One in four Americans during the month of June 2020 had seriously considered suicide after prolonged lockdowns and school closures. And we also had data that I cited in that article from from Britain as well, showing very similar trends. And I could not understand why this was not part of the public conversation. I could not understand 
why no one was talking about these collateral harms. Um, I think it was either shortly before or shortly after the publication of that piece that uh, the Great Barrington Declaration was published. So, so I was edified to see, you know, my now friends Jay and Martin Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Koldorf, also uh, critiquing the lockdown policies. But they were sort of lone voices, and as we now know, they were being subjected to government-sponsored censorship and um, and government-sponsored smear campaigns, actually, to try to silence what prior to the pandemic would have been mainstream, conventional public health wisdom on how to manage a respiratory virus with focused protection. And my concerns, my concerns about um, our, our policies continued the following year with vaccine mandates. And so I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal in August of 2021 when my own institution was considering a vaccine mandate. And that was called, the title of that article was University Vaccine Mandates Violate Medical Ethics. And I couldn't understand why there was no public debate or discussion or concern about mandates that were violating the principle of informed consent, because this is one of the central principles of 20th century, 21st century medical ethics. This is a basic principle that I taught in you know lecture two of the required ethics course that I taught to all medical students every year. Uh, this is the principle first articulated in the Nuremberg Code in the in the wake of the do- uh, Nazi doctor trials at Nuremberg that was designed precisely to prevent the kind of abuses that we saw Nazi medicine fall into during World War II and actually even prior to World War II. And we were steamrolling this principle of informed consent that a, an, an adult of sound mind should be able to make a decision after getting adequate information about risks and benefits and alternatives to a proposed treatment or medical intervention. They should be able to uh, make a free and uncoerced decision to either accept that intervention or to decline it. And to make the same decision on behalf of their children who are not yet old enough to consent. The university went ahead and, and promulgated their vaccine mandate and At that point, after speaking publicly about this and and putting a stake in the ground publicly on the ethics of this, you know, I decided it was important to try to try to practice what I was preaching, so to speak, Um, you know, that that I couldn't with any credibility stand up in the lecture hall or in the seminar room in front of medical students and, and talk about this and other ethical principles that were important. I couldn't talk about moral courage and integrity and doing the right thing, you know, under pressure. Uh, if I hadn't tried in my in my position to do something about this unjust mandate. So long story short, I filed a, a lawsuit in federal court against the University of California challenging their vaccine mandate on the grounds that it was violating the U.S. Constitution. And before the judge made a ruling in that case, the university fired me. On what basis were you fired? I was fired for alleged noncompliance with that same mandate that I was challenging in federal court, alleged noncompliance with the vaccine mandate. I had filed a lawsuit on behalf of people with natural immunity like me who had recovered from COVID. And, and the science already at that point clearly showed that natural immunity was superior to vaccine immunity. For the sake of my legal argument, it just had to be equal to uh, vaccine immunity. 
Um, so I argued I was being unjustly discriminated against for having that particular form of immunity. And um, and that the university, I noted also uh, that the university had also twice rejected my medical exemption that was signed by my physician. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they fired me, uh, you know, allegedly under the under the very policy that I was uh, arguing was both unethical and illegal. So I, I found myself in 2022 kind of right in the middle of, of the debates about what happened to us during COVID um, and trying to figure out how medicine and public health and public policy had gone so drastically wrong and had embraced policies that not only failed to achieve their public health purpose, but did enormous collateral harms. And yet, even as evidence of those harms mounted, those policies remained in place. And, and institutions like the one I had previously worked for just continued to double down on those failed policies. And, and I became convinced that the reason for that is that our response to COVID in the end had little to do with public health and more to do with economic and other political interests that were at work and that were driving policies in a, in a specific direction. You don't say, you know, I was livid because they scared the bejesus out of all of us here in Italy. And that's right. I lived in a condominium. We were the only people in the condominium, aside from one other person under the age of 80. No exaggeration. Yeah. There were nightly festivities in everyone's house. There we were worried about we didn't see anyone. We did not see anyone for over a year. We were wow. not allowed to go out of certain parts of the area where we lived or the region or the province, et cetera, et cetera. And we had to hear nightly parties from these octogenarians. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> we're like, wait a second, something isn't squaring here yet. But I was still in that phase in those first two weeks. I was still like, well, let's just see. Let's just, I was willing to sure. give that Kierkegaardian right leap of faith, yeah. yes, yeah, and yeah. just go with it. But mm -hmm. around that time, I found out that uh, the government's priorities were, this is, I'm not joking, this really killed me. They would put out news info on all the various news sources saying when people could go to their second house and when they could see their calcio games, their football games again. Yeah. And I'm yeah. thinking, this is weird. Meanwhile, Pornhub had given all the men in Italy free subscriptions, right? Because mm -hmm. men mm -hmm. need their porn. But not a word was said. And as a journalist, I was covering the reality that I saw very fast on the ground, that it was women, including women doctors, having to say, I have to stay at home and take care of the kids and do this, what they call here, didactica distanza, the homeschooling nonsense mm -hmm. that was proven to be mm -hmm. a failure here as in everywhere else, right? Yeah, right. Because yep. Disastrous. Oh, it was also ridiculously stupid in the sense of who sat down there at the table and thought these people are going to magically do what Einstein could not do and they're going to reproduce time and space and do it all. Like, did no one think about the fact that there were people like me who I didn't sleep or eat for two years. I was really just, I slept very little. I ate one meal a day. I mean, great. I'm not, I'm not obese as a result, but I think I might've starved myself at certain points of these lockdowns. It was really scary for people like myself who were 
freelancers. We were not covered by anything. We were, uh, because I had just moved to Italy, that was my bonus for moving to Italy. Well, well, I'm sorry, you didn't make your income last year here. So we were eligible for nothing. Meanwhile, we went out to shop once a week. I would go out and I was in the U.S. Army. I knew all about what they call or what they called in the time MOP4, this whole decontamination method that you use if you are in some kind of chemical warfare. And I was all mm. like, okay, I'll do this <laughs> because they were making us think that this was the bloody plague. It wasn't. Yeah, that's right. And I saw very, very quickly the demographic. We saw that children weren't dying. We saw that there was no reason to be locking society up. And yet we'd go to the shop We'd be stopped by the police or the carabinieri here, which are like the French gendarmes. And every time I shopped, it was a 50-50 chance that I'd be stopped. We had to print out forms here to leave. I mean, this makes the Stasi look like hippies, some of what we went through here. Yeah, it's important to have that historical perspective. You mentioned Italian fascism, you know, at the beginning, but... But the lockdowns created a regime and, and you know, more than just a, a novel, untested, previously untested, drastic method of of trying to control a respiratory virus, that the lockdowns were actually a new paradigm of governance. And it was a paradigm of government governance that went way beyond anything that the Italian fascists ever dreamed of doing in terms of micro controlling. Uh, invasively controlling the minutiae of everyday life. How far away from someone are you allowed to stand? Um, when are you allowed to go out of your home? The totalitarian regimes of the past never exercised that level of social control. The uh, the city of London, you know, we we saw people giving up civil liberties that that were not relinquished by the citizens of London during the German bombing of the city in World War II. You know, they had curfews there, but they never they never did anything close to uh, to, to locking down or, or forcing people underground for the sake of their health and safety. So that historical perspective is very, very important to try to understand and wrap your head around uh, what's going on. The problem I'm facing, Aaron, is that I am going to go to that library event next week that's on bullying. Wasn't that avant-garde 10 years ago? But anyways, I'm going to show <laughs> up and I'm going to be that bad person that's going to talk about the elephant in the room because I talk to people all the time here. Nobody yeah. talks about it. And I don't know if you remember or have seen, in fact, the Stepford Wives, but I use the end scene where Catherine Ross is pushing the push cart in the supermarket and staring almost hypnotized yeah. forward. Yeah. But that's right. what I think. I think we're living the Stepford Wives post-lockdown. And I'm like, I feel constantly, I could just refer this to film after film, like The Kid in the Sixth Sense, where I see dead bodies everywhere. But I, I want to <laughs> have an honest discussion with people. And people yeah. are like, right. oh, just move on. Don't be upset. About I'm like, we have been through something. Like when push comes to shove and you actually talk about the real things, people don't want to talk about it here. Yeah. And at the time when COVID was happening, people, we couldn't talk to them. That was one of the genius. I'm sure Mussolini's up there in heaven or in, down there in hell looking at us saying, geez, I should have thought of that because <laughs> they, we were all separated. We could not amass ourselves. And you know what happened here? The government, so fascist, they created laws 
And this isn't under Meloni, by the way. This is under Draghi, the, the quote-unquote yep. liberal candidate. Yep. They created laws that said that you can, you can have protests about everything but lockdown, but vaccines. Right. Can you believe that? Right. So we're living in this insane world where people are not going to go and hear a dated blurb from four different psychologists and therapists about bullying amongst children. And I'm going to go there and say, I feel bullied. I'm going to play the victim here. I feel bullied that I have to read about. It's, it, it reminds me of if someone's drowning on the Titanic and someone says, but where are the hors d'oeuvres? I want to talk about the ship sinking and no one wants yeah. to talk about the ship sinking. Now, I know you're a psychiatrist and you might not work with these kind of social paradigms that might be more apropos for psychoanalysis or even in my own field in anthropology, but are you finding this to be par for the course where the people, especially the people who pushed lockdown are pretending that they never did and they don't want to talk about any of it? Yeah. I think what we're dealing here is, um, with a regime in which so many people were complicit for so long and not only cooperated, but um, scapegoated and pressured and tried to force compliance on any outliers, anyone who was trying to resist the system. And that has resulted now, I think, in a situation in which uh, you have people with a, let's say, a conflicted conscience and they're, first of all, unable or unwilling to look at what happened both to them and by them to other people. And so we're, we're in a situation in which there is a kind of collective um, denial or a collective uh, wall of psychological defenses that are preventing us from literally from remembering, from looking back over the last three years and asking questions. And you know, I think that denial eventually is, is going to break down, hopefully as more and more people come out of their kind of hypnotic state or their, their state of, of sleepwalking. But that's also going to be a very, very painful process because it is going to require people to admit that they were wrong to admit that they were lied to, to admit that the institutions that they were told to trust and that they did trust, uh, particularly under a state of, of enforced fear, were actually not trustworthy. So that's a big, that's a big psychological hill for people to climb. And it's a very painful process. And the easier thing to do, at least in the short term, is simply to look away and to refuse to look outward and to look backward ret retrospectively in time and to refuse to look inward and ask, how have I behaved and what have I done both to myself and to my loved ones and to the people around me over the last three years? And so the, the problem we're facing now is not primarily informational. The information is out there for anyone who cares to look. Uh, the, the problem is, um, you know, people's people are directing their attention away from anything that may be difficult for them to accept. And that's, that's something that I think is just going to require ongoing efforts, um, non-aggressive efforts to slowly step-by-step step, bring people out of this 
kind of sleepwalking state and and back into uh, back into reality. But it, that's that's a real challenge. How to do that is going to be a real a, a very serious challenge. There are people with all sorts of psychological and psychiatric disorders. I saw this happening early on. I said, after I realized what was going on and that they were planning to continue this, I said, this is going to be a mental health disaster. And it's not going to be a one generation thing either, right? That's right. The uh, The effects of school closures, the effects on children of the last three years are going to take decades to play out. And we're only just, you know, already the evidence of the harms of school closures is mounting in terms of educational development, emotional development, social development. Uh, but the, the, the full effects of those are going to play out across the lifespan and is going to affect how that generation uh, parents and raises the following generation of children. So yes, the, the, the collateral harms, um, we already have a mountain of evidence for those harms. Uh, we have half a billion people, 500 million people, either pushed into poverty during the lockdowns, or if they were already struggling with poverty, pushed deeper into more uh, more grinding and more severe poverty, uh, food insecurity, all kinds of, um, of, of not only economic harms, but harms to people's physical and mental health. And I agree that I, I think we do need a truth and reconciliation model. There was a proposal published in the Atlantic magazine here in the United States of the headline was about quote unquote pandemic amnesty. And it was, uh, it was an attempt, I think, just to say, well, there was a lot we didn't know. And, uh, you know, we did the best we could under the circumstances. And, you know, we should all just sort of forgive each other and move on and not, you know, not uh, not get into blaming and not get into, um, you know, sort of strife over any of this. And the problem with that proposal, I mean, there's several problems, but one of the problems with that proposal is it was a form of of sort of cheap forgiveness. I, I tweeted out that, uh, you know, pandemic amnesty is not actually the the establishment, the public health or media establishment asking for your forgiveness. It's it's the establishment forgiving themselves, so to speak, and telling you to to go away. Um, that's not really uh, reconciliation. That's not really forgiveness. And the truth and reconciliation model shows that the real way forward is actually very difficult and very painful. Because if you look at what happened with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, or the commissions that were formed uh, in in Rwanda after the genocide. They they began with truth, right? Um, they began with individual people who bore responsibility standing up and face to face with people who had been harmed or devastated by these actions, admitting the truth of what happened, admitting their role and responsibility in that, and apologizing. And that that work is very, very, very hard. And it can lead to real social healing and real social reconciliation. But that has to begin with truth. And so far, we have had none of the, the truth portion of that proposal. We have had no one stand up and both acknowledge 
that the policies were harmful and be willing to assume any degree of responsibility for promoting or enforcing those policies. And I think until we we begin to have that, there's it, it's simply not possible to have the kind of real conversation and real actions that could lead to healing. I mean, one of the other elements of those commissions was, you know, if you, you know, after a genocide, if your family has been murdered, obviously there's no way to, to make restitution for that. But nevertheless, wherever and whenever possible, attempts at restitution after the apology are necessary, even if they're only symbolic. You know, money can never bring back my loved one. But, you know, if someone's been injured, for example, by a vaccine, well, they, they they at least deserve to have their medical costs for the treatment of that injury covered. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that their disability is ever going to go away, but it does mean that that society and particularly those responsible for the harms at least try to, to whatever extent is possible to make reparation for those harms. So that's actually what's necessary to move forward. But but I, I fear that we're very, very far away from uh, from that kind of project moving forward. Well, that Atlantic piece that you referred to, I grew irate when I saw it for various reasons. Let's start with Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor of The Atlantic, and the fact that that publication has run pro-lockdown pieces quite a bit, has been one of the most intolerant to take pitches from writers. I'm pointing to myself. I've done this with many of the publications. They did not want to talk about psychological harm even the summer of 2020. And I was one of several journalists. I've talked to a few others. We couldn't get pitches through. No one wanted to talk about it. The leftist publication in Italy, La Repubblica, had titles like The Guardian, like The New York Times, like this. 20 things you can do with your kids during lockdown. And it would involve all these craft items that the poor could not afford. You know, the elephant in the... These are leftist papers. And I'll tell you something. Uh, I am very, very far left, but I'm revolted by the quote unquote left. Uh, I found Fox News more leftist than any of the mainstream media. <laughs> and I swear, no, I swear, you're, you're yeah. looking, you know, yeah. you're talking to someone who 20 years ago, I couldn't stand, like, remember Rush Limbo, remember even Tucker Carlson 20 years ago, it was nutty. But he's he's had the maturity to apologize for ever supporting the global war on terror we're getting it wrong. He has actually stated this. He's more mm-hmm. analytic and thoughtful these last three years. I've been following them, not every day, but when I can. And thinking about the poor people, thinking about the disenfranchised, I'm really disappointed by what has been discovered from the Twitter files. As you mentioned in your last piece, we are seeing government meddling. Now, when I had Norman Finkelstein on the show a few months ago, he said, well, at least the repression and the censorship we've been put at has come from the hands of big tech. And I said to him, I wouldn't be so sure about that. I think there are fingerprints mm. here of something bigger. I don't think this is a coincidence. Yeah. And sure enough, can you talk about not just your last piece in the Wall Street Journal, but also your legal case that you have with Louisiana and Missouri, correct? Yeah, that's right. So we there's a case here um, in federal court called Missouri v. Biden. The state attorney general of Missouri and Louisiana filed this case alleging that several senior people within the executive branch of government and our federal agencies have been colluding with social media companies 
to censor speech, particularly speech related to uh, critiques of the COVID pandemic policies. And uh, here in the United States, uh, the the private companies, arguably companies like you know Facebook and Meta and and YouTube and Twitter and so forth, arguably they can they can censor and they can decide uh, what they allow on their platforms and what they don't allow on their platforms as private companies. There's, I say there's debate upon on that because, you know, some people think they're, they're not actually private companies. They're more like public utilities, but setting aside that debate, no one doubts that the federal government cannot do that. The federal government cannot engage in that kind of censorship, but the evidence that we've already, um, excavated on discovery in this case, email communications and so forth from uh, from the federal government to big, big tech executives and vice versa has shown that that's precisely what has been happening. So, and in fact, it's happening on a much vaster scale and it involves many, many more people and many different federal agencies, at least 17 federal agencies, I think, at last count, than we had even suspected when we first filed the case. And so if the court rules that what we allege is in fact happening, this will be by far the most pervasive and egregious violation of Americans' First Amendment rights in United States history. Full stop. This is um, you know, and part of that has to do with the technology. I mean, most previous censorship cases that went to the U.S. Supreme Court involved, for example, one book publisher censoring one book at the behest of the government or censoring, you know, one part of a, a, a book. They were they were sort of one instance <laughs> things that, that nevertheless were a serious problem in terms of violating the U.S. Constitution. What we're talking about here involves millions, literally millions of instances of censorship and the government censorship regime, which involved many, many people literally working around the clock to uh, notify and pressure social media companies to remove content included, you know, not just uh, not just flagging cert- certain broad issues but actually it got it it got to the point where it was so detailed and so down into the weeds that you'd have you'd have a government bureaucrat asking a senior executive at a social media company why hasn't this particular post been removed why hasn't this particular individual or account been removed from your platform so targeting um targeting not just sort of, uh, you know, please censor all content criticizing vaccines, but please censor this person's post on such and such a date, such and such a time that raise questions about the, the vaccine. So so that's what we're dealing with here in the United States. Um, but this, this case, I think, was the first to be, begin to break open and, uh, and allow us to peer under the hood of this censorship regime. What's come out in the Twitter files has only confirmed and reinforced our central claim in the case. And so now we have from multiple sources uh, and, you know, multiple journalists involved in the Twitter files uh, and, and multiple documents that we've retrieved on discovery, all pointing in the same direction of implicating the United States government 
in the, the largest violation of Americans' constitutional free speech rights in, in the history of this country. So this, you know, this is a big deal. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, I, I'm hoping that it's the beginning of the, the dismantling of this vast censorship regime. You talk about what happened at your institution, but I blame a lot of this on the media. I really cannot see any other way around it because where people are getting their information, we already know roughly half of Americans who use Twitter are getting their news feed from there. And when you can control the fact that the Hunter Biden laptop story is not allowed to be shared there, that yeah. the New York Post had its account removed for two weeks, then Facebook follows in good form on and on. We're really supposed to believe what we're being told when it turns out all of that was a hoax. And if we go to the New York Times or the Washington Post, these papers of allegedly good repute, they never created erratum. They did not make apologia for their errors and they made errors. That's right. A lot of these papers went along with the lie. The same thing with lockdown, the same thing with not covering mental health deficits, the same thing about masks, something as simple as masks. The lies continue here in this country, we have to still wear masks to go to see our doctors. I feel like yeah. I'm being given the host and the wine. I'd rather that. I'd rather really have a bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, the the religious analogy is is apt. Um, co- co- health uh, and science were held up as uh, idols. Uh, there was a kind of religious fervor that uh, was established around following well people thought they were following the science they were actually just following the television in most cases um but that that created a strong social bond and a sense that i'm among the good people and i'm not among the bad people and that was that that psychological phenomenon was leveraged uh to advance certain economic and political aims. And that was instrumentalized for purposes that had nothing to do with public health, nothing to do with the common good. I mean, the the whole vaccine argument that you should get it for the sake of others, even if you're not going to benefit, was disingenuous from the beginning because we knew from the beginning that the vaccines were not tested in the clinical trials as to, to uh, establish whether they could stop infection and transmission. And it only took uh, about four to six weeks into the vaccine rollout for us to see that in fact, they do not stop or slow inf- infection and transmission. And so that argument was um, that argument on, on the basis of science was discredited very early on in the mass vaccination campaign. And yet it continued to be deployed, um, again, not as a way to advance public health, but as a way to advance social controls. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I tell people, not in severity, but in scale, 
this is worse than what happened in Nazi Germany. I don't think people realize that we were all locked down. Like, if we had been a refugee from any country, we would have had Amnesty International creating billboards for us. But no, <laughs> yeah, what? there's right. a psychological switch that has been flipped here because we saw a lot of the more woke institutions pushing this madness. I was appalled to see some of the media outlets that I once upon a time respected push this unquestioningly. I understand r- reporting on that side, but there was never the other side. It was always one side. The monstering of Jay Martin, everyone who spoke out, not just the Great Barrington declarants, but anyone who spoke out. It was severe, yeah. the kind of monstering that happened to them. People lost jobs. I'm sure you are in good company with Julie Poness, who similarly mm-hmm. lost her job. Yeah. We, we're talking about academic institutions where our job is to have students think through questions, to question, to question. And we have been now put into a box, put into the naughty corner because of doing just that. What kind of heritage are we leaving the future? I mean, this is dystopian, Aaron. And I, I am not wanting to be Debbie Downer, but this is, I'm a, I've always been a very positive person. How to put this? I lost my first child in 2007. And it, when I came out of that, you don't ever survive it in terms of saying, oh, I got over it. No, but you move through this space. I was able to find that space of happiness I once had. I don't find that space of happiness I once had after this because yeah. I find myself yeah. living in this, I call it the mental hospital without bars because I feel like general society is living in denial. If I have to see one more library presentation about <laughs> Mussolini, or people say to me, well, as soon as she was elected, what do you think about Maloney being elected? And I tell every single person, because they say, I think I'm going to go into some kind of Trump derangement syndrome fit. Yeah. And I tell yeah. people, we deserve her. I don't think you understand. We deserve her. We We deserve much worse. And people don't like my response because I'm practically a Marxist. I mean, I am. But the reality is that nobody had our backs. I have been talking to uh, this group in upstate New York that has been doing rent strikes since lockdown. Nobody thought of renters. But the only country that this has actually been activated and realized in has been New York State, where you've had action. Here in this alleged socialist Europe, nothing. Nobody cared about renters who are on the bottom rung of society because Italians are one of the highest landowning countries in the world. A huge number of Italians own homes. It's one of the highest. It's certainly in excess of Germany and in England. So when I had to hear the news saying when we could go to our second homes, I wanted to scream. I just thought this is the part of this government, people who are uber wealthy, people who need their football fix. Nothing was mentioned about the people doing the relief work, largely women. And it was very disturbing for me, not just because I'm a woman, I could I could be a man and be seeing right through this because it was transparent. You mentioned the 17 government agencies, 17. This makes McCarthy look like child's play. Well, yeah, clearly what's going on is is coordinated. We have the emergence of a new kind of corporatism, the, the merging of state and corporate power. And if you want to talk about Mussolini, <laughs> you know, his book with Giovanni Gentile, the uh, the definition of fascism, 
talks about how, you know, in, in fascism as it actually existed historically, you had this merging of state and corporate power. You had the state um, commandeering supposedly private corporations for its own ends and its own purposes. So you can have you can have the appearance of a divide between public institutions and private institutions. But in fact, the two, as we see in the United States censorship regime, the two are working hand in glove. And when the when the private companies try to push back, and there was some pushback from some of the social media companies against the government pressure, the government just keeps at it until the social media companies cave in. And there's there's a there's a massive asymmetry of power there. These companies are very wealthy. They're obviously very powerful, but the only, you know, the only, the only people more powerful uh, is basically the state who has the capability to make life difficult for those companies through regulations and, and other measures. So, uh, so the, the kind of corporatism that is emerging today globally, not just in the United States and Italy, but, but, but I would argue globally is the recapitulation of something that happened between the two world wars in Italy, uh, particularly, that we should be very concerned about. I, I, I'll mention also, um, because this this whole thing about the, the libraries, you know, doing a presentation on uh, on fascism is is so surreal. It almost seems like it almost seems like a, a propagandistic attempt to divert attention away. Um, from, you know, from the elephant in the room. But Eric Vogelin, who's uh, uh, in academic circles, a well-known 20th century political theorist who studied the 20th century totalitarianisms, had a very interesting insight about totalitarianism. He said, the central feature of totalitarian regimes is not secret police or mass surveillance or you know, men in men in jackboots and uh, concentration camps, as horrifying as all of those things are. And in fact, many of those things we're seeing emerge today. COVID quarantine camps, uh, mass surveillance on a scale that the, the Nazis and the Italian fascists could only have, have dreamed of. Uh, but he said, as horrifying as all those things are, the central feature of all totalitarian systems is the inability to ask certain questions, the prohibition of questions. Uh, the silencing of anyone who sticks their neck out and says, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? This doesn't make sense. This is not right. And uh, I would I would respectfully submit that that is the most concerning development that we have seen over the last three years. Because once you're in a situation in which you're not permitted to ask questions, eventually those strictures on thought and speech become internalized. And this is the distinction, by the way, between a dictatorship and a totalitarian regime. We often use those terms interchangeably, but a a dictatorship rules externally through fear. And we certainly saw a lot of that over the last three years. But a totalitarian regime will deploy those external threats for a period of time, but But as things progress, there is less and less need for secret police and concentration camps and external threats of punishment in order to get people to comply. Because why? Because people psychologically internalize 
those uh, those restrictions, you know, they start they start reporting on their neighbors. They start self-censoring. And eventually the, the ultimate prison comes when those questions, the ability to question the society in which I'm living, the ability to question what I'm, I've been told, those questions no longer occur to people, right? They've, uh, they've become psychologically impossible. That is the perfection of the totalitarian system. That is the ultimate prison in which people can find themselves. So, you know, people can look around and say, well, we, you know, we don't have men in jackboots. We don't have secret police. We don't have, you know, concentration camps. You know, I don't know how people could say we don't have mass surveillance because we do, but, but it it certainly doesn't look like we're living in a totalitarian society externally. But if we're living in a society in which it's become impossible to ask certain questions to the point where, Certain questions no longer even occur to people, right? They they no longer want to look back and question what happened over the last three years. They're, they're no longer interested in asking questions. And when people do raise questions, they get either defensive or angry. Well, they, they've internalized um, a, a system that, uh, that by Vogelin's definition is totalitarian. And that's a very fight, frightening prospect. This mirrors much of what Michel Foucault talks about with the panopticon model. That's right. Right? Precisely. I feel worn down by the fact that our societies are not asking these questions. When I say our societies, I mean just me outside of the school talking to people, waiting for my children to come out. People are in deflection mode. It's really easy to talk about Mussolini, isn't it? Or my mother used to say, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the theater? Right. <laughs> exactly. Crimes and misdemeanors. Alan Alda's yeah. character saying, tragedy yeah. plus time is comedy. Akin to that, I would say, yes, people need to step back and have some time to think about it, but we've been locked up. I've worked on issues of suicide bombers, on repression yeah. of people in various parts of the world. And here I was. Yeah. As a journalist, I was no longer in academia. I'm working on this issue. I'm reading all the science. The fact that it's called the science should include people in. Science is not a singular thing, is it? Exactly. And people were so willing to lock into step. And I just, oh, I'm watching the devastation to my poor four-year-old child. That's why when I was late, you know, football is our world now. I I've told the teachers when they say, oh, your son, he had difficulties coming back to school. And I would tell the teachers, I still do, I don't care if he's illiterate, I want him to be happy. Mm -hmm. Because what Mm -hmm. we were put through was insane. It was inhuman. That's right. The other way, the teachers say, was there something we can do to help? They're at a new school now, near our home. I said, well, yes, there's something you can do. You have unions. Use your unions. Talk to your unions about never locking down again. You need to fight this. This happened not just because of Draghi in Rome. This happened because unions shut up. People weren't speaking. And they said, well, is there something more easy that I could do to help you? (laughs) Nobody wants to take the work and do it. And it involves being, sometimes you have to be an asshole because nobody likes the person in the room who agitates. Of course not. Nobody wants... The reason that we see the write-up of the 
Warsaw Ghetto, the way it happened, people were not happy about the Warsaw uprisings. Of course, and no one wants people to disturb the status quo, especially when they're actually being exterminated, because that doesn't look good. And yep. nobody wants people to say, Dr. Fauci, he has conflicts of interests all over the place, as that biography showed, as many others have noticed, as people within the field of research science have been saying for decades before COVID, yep. that there are conflicts of interest all throughout the way that drugs go to trial, the FDA, you work at the FDA, because when you retire, guess who you're going to work for? The drug companies you've been approving for two decades. We saw this. We saw this all throughout the Oxycontin debates. Yeah, that happened right. because of these conflicts of interest. And people right. want to stick their head in the sand and say, it's over. Enjoy the life. Enjoy the world. Yeah, enjoy the 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 opiates. I mean, we gave you free porn. And, um, you know, are there any other palliatives that we can offer that won't treat the underlying disease, but will will sort of placate the masses. Um, and this is another feature of totalitarian systems. I mean, um, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley's famous dystopian novel, uh, featured uh, a kind of soft totalitarianism that, you know, you can contrast that with Orwell's 1984, which did have the big brother, the secret police, the surveillance, the men in jackboots. And in Huxley's dystopian world, the masses were sort of kept in line and kept uh, in in a sort of passive state. They were this 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 homogenous, passive, uniform mass that was easily manipulated, in part because the ubiquitous ubiquitous use of the, the fictionalized drug soma. Right, anytime you have an unpleasant uh, thought or feeling. Anytime anyone starts asking questions or starts wondering about the meaning and purpose of their life or what is all of this about, well, you just pop a few Soma pills or you just, you know, download a bit of you porn or you just, uh, <laughs> you know, you just plug into 24 uh, seven sports, <laughs> uh, then, uh, you know, then these these questions will event you know the, these these unpleasant questions will eventually sort of disappear. And I, I think what we're seeing now is a kind of blending of the future that Orwell saw with the future that um, that Huxley saw. We had the kind of soft totalitarianism of Huxley, probably leading up to the pandemic, and then and then was added to that over the last three years the what i call the biomedical security state this increasingly militarized public health apparatus the digital technologies of surveillance and control all of this backed up by the police power of the state the more the more orwellian uh vision of a totalitarian dystopia and uh so i think you know both of these novels in their own prophetic way saw at least partially the future that that was that was coming and it, it we're, I, you know, now we seem to be living in that future. I, in my recent book, The New Abnormal, I was doing another interview about the book and the interviewer said, uh, you know, reading your book felt like reading nonfiction Orwell. And what I told him was, look, I didn't set out to write nonfiction Orwell. I, I set out just to explain 
what's going on. I set out, first of all, to figure out what happened to me professionally and why the the biomedical security regime basically came down on me when I started asking questions and, and forced me out of academic medicine. Uh, and to answer that question, I, I realized I had to go beyond questions of public health and, and, and look at these broader issues. And uh, the truth right now is, is going to be unpalatable to a lot of people, but it's better, it's better to live in reality, however uncomfortable that reality might be, than to live in a permanent, you know, drugged out, gorked out, soma-induced coma. Because, um, because the truth is better than a lie, even if the truth at times is difficult or painful. There were huge numbers of corporations behind the corporations. There were the puppeteers of companies such as Facebook and Twitter that make Meta look like small fish. There are yeah. huge corporations that were signing on to an agreement to keep us locked up. They, these companies were all in it together. And it's really frightening when you start to look at what was happening. COVID saw the largest upward transfer of wealth in world history from the working class and the middle class. No, I correction, not COVID. The lockdowns, our policy response to COVID resulted in the largest upward transfer of wealth in world history. From the working class and the middle class, not just the upper class, but to the very tip of the socioeconomic pyramid, to the uh, to the largest, wealthiest multinational corporations in the world, mostly big tech. Uh, the, the personal wealth of their CEOs uh, skyrocketed during the pandemic, and their stock prices skyrocketed. Again, I, I need to keep correcting myself. Not during the pandemic, during the lockdowns, because of our policy response to the pandemic. And so Amazon in, in the United States lobbied, for example, on, on the West Coast of the U.S. for lockdowns very early on. Why was that? Was that because Jeff Bezos is an expert on ha how to manage respiratory viruses or to deal with public health? No, it's because when people were locked down in their homes, first of all, Amazon's competition, the small businesses closed and uh, only uh, and 40 percent of those small businesses that closed in 2020 during lockdowns have still not reopened. So the lockdowns destroyed big tech's competition in the market. And when people were forced to interact only behind screens and unable to go out of their home, of course, they were going to be ordering all of their goods online. They were going to be engage, engaged in all of their communications online, which was precisely the perfect business model for social media uh, and, and big tech and Google uh, to basically um, take their all their already enormous profits and um, and see them skyrocket, and so that's why I say there are economic and political interests at work. They really have nothing to do with with public health. And given that those same social media companies, particularly when people are locked down and unable to interact face to face at work or at school. Uh, those social media companies have enormous power to control the flow of information and the flow of communications. One of the one of the censorship 
regime discoveries that we made in our Missouri v. Biden case was Meta, which is the parent company that owns Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, was censoring not only on Facebook and Instagram, COVID-related information, they were censoring on WhatsApp. Now, WhatsApp is a supposedly secure end-to-end encrypted text messaging application. So when people use WhatsApp, they believe that I'm just uh, I'm just using this application to, to text message my family and, and friends. And, you know, it's uh, it's it's maybe cheaper than than doing an SMS message, but it's more or less the same thing. Well, um, so how did Facebook or Meta rather manage to censor content on WhatsApp? Well, they would limit the kinds of links that you could share. And so while they may not be able to directly access the content of your message, they can see if you've attached a link to an article um, or to a, you know, a news story uh, or to a video. And if they didn't like that thing that they were, that you were sharing, they would limit the number of times it could be shared. They would limit the number of people with whom it could be shared. So again, controlling the flow of information through censorship, reaching into not just the stuff that I think I'm posting publicly on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, but even the things that I think I'm sharing privately on applications like WhatsApp. This is a level of surveillance and control and information control and propaganda that would have been impossible 20 years ago because the technology simply was not available, but was you know, was made possible basically after 2007, which is when the first, when the first iPhone was released. So this was the first kind of public health crisis or or epidemic or pandemic of the digital age. And we saw that various governmental and private actors were prepared to use those tools at their disposal precisely for the purpose of surveillance and control of entire populations. I've had guests on the show who talked about the power of the World Economic Forum. And you start to look at the list of these major companies that make, like you said, Meta, it owns other companies that are in themselves big. Oh my gosh. You've got some mega companies here and a lot of them are chemical, life insurance, and investment companies. Mitsubishi Chemical Group, Mohammed bin Salam Foundation, Monaco Economic Board, Morgan Lewis, Morgan Stanley, Mozilla. You have, you go through their alphabet. It's depressing. McDonald's, the Mayo Clinic, McKinsey Company. There are conflicts of interest up and down this because what you have is one person scratching the back of the other who scratches and on and on and on. Well, (laughs) um, there there are credible arguments out there that uh, COVID was used opportunistically uh, to um, basically orchestrate, um, how to put this, people in finance could see disaster brewing in 2019, and they could see a major global crisis brewing in 2019. And they could see the, the very real and probably inevitable danger of global economic collapse occurring before the pandemic. And uh, many of these most powerful financial actors, these world-spanning corporations, uh, were probably happy to use COVID 
uh, not only is an excuse to vacuum up wealth from the lower classes, the middle classes, but also as a, as a distraction or a, a plausible sort of deniability scenario for why the economic collapse occurred, right? We can blame it on the virus. We can blame it on a global pandemic rather than blaming it on uh, the irresponsible and massive leveraging of debt and leveraging of leveraging of leveraging of debt and the you know the the printing of money and the artificially low interest rates and all the other mechanisms that were used to delay the inevitable collapse and um you know i'm not an economist i'm not an expert in macroeconomics so uh so i don't know that i have the expertise to to actually weigh in on that theory but based on what i've seen and based on my layman's understanding of what was at work globally economically it does seem like a, at, at the very least it does seem like a plausible hypothesis yes uh, i can't see how this was accidental and there were cases in the states where smaller businesses were not allowed to be open in certain states but the walmarts were right There's there you go no other way Just to read so. that it's yeah. not a coincidence that, if anything, if you're going to talk about level of hygiene and danger, it's far easier to control who's going in and out of a small shop than Walmart, where people are just running around and aisles are open. Yeah. And no, I found the way that we've been lied to traumatizing. Uh, that's why I'm going to be Debbie Downer for a while. I think I'm going to be Debbie Downer here until we get a truth and reconciliation committee going. Yeah. And I, as an immigrant, could not just go out on the streets and protest. But as soon as I get my citizenship, I hope to be arrested the next lockdown. Because this <laughs> is insane what's gone on. Yeah. yeah. No, civil civil disobedience um is is the only way forward here. And what I what I try what I've been trying to explain to people is even though many of these specific policies have been uh, walked back in particular regions. You know, some places no longer have clearly lockdowns. Some places have dropped their vaccine mandates. Not, nevertheless, that, that whole infrastructure that I described earlier, that biomedical security state infrastructure that allowed all this to happen is still in place, just waiting for the next declared state of emergency to advance its aims even further. So COVID was just the beginning uh, and the, the people, you know, the people who advance their aims during COVID are ready to continue advancing their aims with the next real or, or, or manufactured public health crisis. And we have to be ready for that. And we have to know, you know, where are we going to draw the line and how are we going to collectively stand up and resist? Because if we don't, we're only going to see the continued erosion of our freedoms and human rights. I am very worried about the zeitgeist at this point, because when I interviewed Jay the second time a few months ago, he thanked me. He said, oh, I want to thank you for having me on the show because you were one of the first journalists that interviewed me. And, and yeah. I was like, well, thank you, because I feel like you saved my life. Like, I could not, but aside from the obvious fact that during lockdown we were in prison, so we couldn't see the other inmates. Very yeah. strange prison this was, at least in a real prison. Right. You get to see them during lunch, right? Anyways, um, 
I felt like I had nobody to talk to because I'm in the country of of a future psychological crisis. I do not right. believe that a country where people are so oblivious to what has happened, while at the same time, Italians are, oh, that child, the UNICEF calendars, every Christmas, I always have to say, mm -mm -mm, no, <laughs> right. you, you got to stop doing right. that. Because I, I'm very critical of the NGO, and I'm very critical of a lot of what goes on around development work. And so I see these people as being very willing to follow whatever mandate they're given and they drive around smiling with their masks on. I'm imagining I can see their smiles because their masks on, but they're driving in their cars alone with masks on to virtue signal their goodness. And this happens yeah. today. today. I see it all the time. I understand the elderly wearing the masks in the shops. I do. They've been frightened to death. That's right. uh, I get that. And I actually am angry about it because you'd think someone would say on the news that oxygen levels are important and maybe, you know, but no, not happening. Everyone now has their porn and their football and their second houses. Yep. But it's made me feel really down about about the world, about where in the heck am I? Because I've had a lot of people and some of our readers and listeners who early on, even before I launched Savage Minds, I launched it in 2020, but people would say, well, you've changed your position. Now, I've changed my position because I change with new information. This is not the plague right. we've been lied to. Let's accept that we've been lied to and let's move on. Uh, but but what about, what, what do you mean, what about? We've got we've to <laughs> talk about the... One thing we have is, yes, our health. People always say that you have your health. That's the most important thing. Mental health is health, too. That's been thrown to the side. No one's talking about this. A life of depression is not a life I want. A life That's of right. seeing my children being unable to express themselves because they're angry because of what happened is not a life I want to see for anyone, not my children only, but anyone's children. Right. We kept hearing about how the children suffered. I know people in my age range have suffered. A lot of people my age have suffered. People are like right. freaking out. I know friends who are leftists who moved to Florida State just to never have to live through that again. And that's crazy to me. Well, look, um, I would like to maybe try to offer our listeners a little bit of hope because I agree with you, things are bad. And we have to be honest about where we're at um, and, and what's going on. But I do also want to point out, um, as, as a friend of mine likes to say, nature and particularly human nature always bats in the bottom of the ninth inning. And that's that's an American metaphor referring to, to baseball. So, you know, for, for people who don't follow baseball, ninth inning is the end of the game. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's sort of the last chance to turn things around for the losing team. And, and I, I think what my friend means by that, and I agree with him is that, well, two things, number one, regimes that are built on lies will always eventually collapse under the weight of their own internal contradictions. That's the good news. The, the bad news is that they can be propped up for a long time 
by structures of, of power. So, um, you know, Stalin's Soviet regime lasted a long time and, and destroyed many people's lives. Um, and so eventually it collapsed under the weight of its own contradictions, but it took, it took a long time and there was a lot of damage done. So I think the task for us, um, is first of all, to recognize that the, the, the present darkness will end, uh, and the regime supporting it eventually will collapse. And the only question then is how do we accelerate that process? And I, I think we accelerate that process by continuing to do what you're doing, by patiently um, and persistently having these conversations, talking to people, asking questions, taking them maybe one, the next step up that inclined plane out of ignorance and into um, an awareness of what's going on around them. And so it's not a question of, of, whether the current biosecurity global technocracy will collapse, it will. Um, and we're starting to see cracks in the edifice of this mega machine. We're starting, we're starting to th see things opening up. We're starting to see more and more people asking questions. Um, it, it's, it's become more and more possible to have these conversations today than it was even six months ago. Uh, the censorship on Twitter has has loosened up, and that that's broken open a lot of a lot of stories. That's allowed a lot of people who have been asking questions to gain more and more reach. The largest Twitter spaces recently have been uh, those that are devoted to COVID and and vaccine mandates and uh, and these topics. So people are actually hungry. Uh, to finally be able to talk about this. Not everyone, but a significant portion of the population. And the fact is, you know, we don't need to wake everyone up. We just need to wake up a sufficiently critical mass, you know, a powerful minority uh, that begins chipping away at this edifice. And then we're going to reach a tipping point. I mean, no, nobody saw in 1988... Uh, Soviet communism and its satellite states collapsed. No one predicted that the Berlin Wall would fall a year before it fell. In fact, most observers of the world scene thought that, you know, the East-West Cold War is sort of a permanent feature of our political landscape. Uh, it's not going to change anytime soon. Uh, and uh, and we have to sort of learn to live with it. Um but history is full of surprises and um, and it's something in 1989 reached a tipping point and suddenly the regime collapsed and it collapsed without a shot being fired, which was also shocking. Right. Most observers thought, well, the only way the Cold War is going to end is, you know, with a with a large scale nuclear war. Right. Or this kind of continued stalemate indefinitely. Uh, but that's not, in fact, what happened. That that regime collapsed under the the, the weight of its own internal contradictions, and um, and so I, you know, I wanted, I do want to offer a people a sense of hope that lies and propaganda and censorship and all the rest can seem very powerful, but the people propping this up are having to work so hard precisely because the truth is powerful.
and and, and the truth can lead to a crisis, um, an internal crisis of a regime that is built on lies. And so patiently, peacefully, calmly, but firmly, and with conviction, continuing to speak the truth, I think is more powerful than people realize. People have internalized some of these uh, constrictions on their own thought and speech. Stop self-censoring. This is something ordinary people can do. You know, your listeners may, may wonder, well, gosh, this thing is so powerful. And, you know, I don't have a microphone uh, like the people on the show that can reach lots of people. I, I, you know, I just have my own little life here and my own small circle of influence. We'll begin there. And, um, and those small acts of saying, you know, I'm not going to self-censor. I'm going to say what I think in this circumstance. Uh, that's contagious. You know, cowardice is contagious, as we saw in 2020. But courage is also contagious. And maybe you stepping out and saying, no, I don't I don't actually think what happened to us was OK. And I don't think I don't think the lockdowns made any sense. And in fact, they did a lot of harm. Well, that may empower two or three other people in that conversation, you know, at, at your school or at your workplace to step out and say, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I agree. Um, people who otherwise would have stayed silent, but because you were willing to speak up, that gave them the courage to uh, to speak up. So, um, so I think we need to take heart. First of all, that this re- regime will collapse, but second of all, that uh, that ordinary people have a role in that, and ordinary people can um, can do. You know, we all need to do our part. And you know, if we start doing that, if even five or ten percent of the population starts doing that. That will be the beginning of the end of of you know the kinds of the kinds of problems that we've talked about on the show. I only hope that people will think more proactively also about their role in the world because aside from this subject, I remember many years ago talking about a subject I don't remember what, and the person's response to me was, "Oh, I'm not political," and I looked at her and I said, "You are. You just don't know you are." Everything yeah. is political in our day that's and age. Right. We, that's right. uh, the fact that you're drinking bottled water and talking to me, that's a political choice mm-hmm. you took. And she was a bit uh, annoyed by my response. But I, I think it's time that people understand that this happened because we allowed it to happen. And when I say we, we had to be a mass to, in order to turn that ship around. And we didn't. We didn't for various reasons. Uh, your book on the new abnormal, the rise of the biomedical security state, addresses a lot of of these issues that we've discussed. Is there a takeaway from that book that might give those in power hesitation? Should they be the new Fauci? Because <laughs> I say this yeah. because here we were given Fauci. It was almost like, why did anyone vote in elections in all these different countries if at the end of the day, the big brother Fauci was going to be on the screen? There yeah. were cues being taken directly from the White House or from his office, just in the same ironic way. I'm sure you've been doing this these last weeks. Have you seen CNN's coverage of China's lockdown? And it's yeah. so bad. It's so, yeah. And I'm thinking, where were you? Wait a minute. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Two different okay, they're, they're a ten, a ten, 10 out of 10 on a bad scale. But 
gosh, we were at eight <laughs> out of 10 on a bad scale just a few years ago. Wait, yeah, exactly. Where where were you? But, you know, but that's that's also that's also a first kind of little trial balloon, a first foray into the realm of truth for CNN. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's, you know, part of me wants to call out their hypocrisy. Um, but another part of me says, well, OK, that's a start. If that's the only step that they can take at this point is, you know, criticizing the Chinese communist regime, you know, which is where lockdowns originated. Well, OK, I'll, I'll take that over the radio silence on lockdowns that we've seen from CNN uh, throughout this whole crisis. So I'm trying to find the, I'm really trying to find the, the positive here. Julian, it's sometimes it's hard, but, uh, you know, I, I think we need to, yeah, it, it, we, we can't lose hope. We can't lose hope. True. Although Jay said, you know, I resemble his wife in terms of, I want heads to roll and he's more sympathetic. Yeah. I'm not, um, I'm not. And again, I'm a very sympathetic person about so many issues. If I can fight for the rights of someone on death row, uh, but there's a difference. Uh, there's a big difference. Uh, yeah. And this is where I go back to if your book offers some kind of light in the scientific medical field in the same way that there needs to be a book about the new abnormal written about my colleagues who pushed lies. I referred yeah. to the editor of The Atlantic earlier. The Atlantic is one of those publications that I would never work for ever because of his presence there. This is a person who brought us the global war on terror based on lies, along with Judith yeah. Miller. This is someone who was promoted for his work in creating the dissolution of a state of what many consider to be mass murder and yeah. leading to domino effect in many ways, Syria, which huge human rights crisis and one of the biggest since the Holocaust on the scale of, in numbers, people being displaced. It's disgusting. that For me, that publication is, is toilet paper. Um, yeah. But the fact that they ran that piece, what she wanted us to do was to forget about the complicity. Now, I'm all into people not having their heads roll and just being able to say, we screwed up. Let's have this the next time something similar goes down. And that's not what that writer was proposing. She was proposing that we all just look the other way and accept, uh, ah, yeah. it was a bad day. It was a bad hair day. And that pissed me off. I was so yeah. angry about that piece, Aaron. I was so angry that I started to write about it and I couldn't. I was that angry. <laughs> there, Yeah, there, there has to be both a reckoning and... Um, and a better way than just you know having our having our head explode because of of this the the, the pent up anger is is understandable. I felt it at times, um, absolutely. I felt it at times, but um, but the problem is, I think that kind of reaction, that kind of approach, plays into the hands of those who um, ha who have weaponized media and communications and uh good intentions for uh for so long um that any any aggression or or violence even if only sort of verbal aggression i think will be met with more retaliation and more uh, more excuses for increasing 
tyrannical controls and censorship. Um, look at all these unhinged COVID skeptics that are, you know, saying these crazy things. We need to, you know, this little t- Twitter's little exper- experiment in free speech has obviously failed. Uh, you know, we need to get these people off of our platforms. So th- that's why I think, um, you know, and Matthias Desmond, when he talks about mass formation, has written about this. That's why the response as hard as it as hard as this is to do, has to be the nonviolent resistance response of a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King Jr., which, you know, which is a heroic level of self-restraint in the face of aggression and tyranny. But it's also, for that very reason, I think enormously powerful. 